This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Three Lions podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. Thank you for joining me. Once again, we are looking at previous World Cups that England have featured in. Getting all those individual memories from both supporters and players, either good or bad. The memories, that is, not the players. Uh, All of those can still be heard on previous episodes on your podcast provider of choice or at threelionspodcast.com. And again, this episode, we've got some great anecdotes from an England fan who was there in 1990. And for some reason, it's often referred to as Italia 90 rather than Italy 90. Now, this is a tournament where many my age will have fond memories of. This is my first World Cup that I remember properly. Players that all seemed so exotic to me. Salvatore Scilacci, Roger Miller, Claudio Canizia, Thomas Scaravi, Florin Radachoyu, Dragon Stojkovic was another. And then there was the futuristic stadiums. The San Siro in Milan, the Stadio Luigi Ferraris in Genoa, and Rome's Stadio Olimpico. Now, Italy were awarded the finals back in May 1974 at a FIFA meeting in Zurich. Although originally Austria, England, France, Greece, Soviet Union, West Germany and Yugoslavia, they all submitted the intention to want to host the finals. One by one, they all withdrew, leaving only the Soviet Union and Italy remaining. Now, on the day before the final hosts were announced, the Soviet Union said they were boycotting the 1984 Summer Olympics, this due to be held in Los Angeles. And the following day, Italy were awarded the tournament by a considerable margin over the Soviets. And it's thought that Olympic factor was the major reason that Italy were awarded the World Cup. After a disastrous European Championships in 1988, where I have to remind you, England lost all three games. They quickly got into World Cup qualifying mode, and they were drawn in UEFA's Group 2, which was a four-team group, alongside Sweden, Poland and Albania. And we qualified as one of the best runners-up. We won three and drew three. All of those nil-nil. And we finished a point behind Sweden. Uh, It started with a nil-nil draw at home to Sweden. We then beat Albania away, thanks to goals from John Barnes and Brian Robson in a 2-0 victory. Albania came to Wembley in April 1989. Goals from Lineker, Beardsley got two, Waddle and Gascoigne saw us win 5-0. Poland then came to Wembley, and we saw those off with a 3-0 win. Lineker, Barnes and Neil Webb getting the goals there in a 3-0 victory. We then travelled to Sweden, and again drew 0-0, and then finished off the qualifying campaign by going away to Poland and drawing 0-0. The finals, they were a tournament with 24 nations once again. Europe dominating it with 14, there was four from South America and two each from Asia, Africa and Central and North America. And in what was to be his final seven games as England manager, Bobby Robson's second World Cup squad was as follows. Goalkeepers, Peter Shilton, he was at Derby County at the time. He was 40 years old and had accrued 118 caps before the tournament started. There was Chris Woods from Rangers. There was David Seaman from Queen's Park Rangers. Although, once the finals came around, he would injure his finger and would be replaced by Chelsea's Dave Besson. 
Defenders, there's Gary Stevens at Rangers, Stuart Pearce and Des Walker of Nottingham Forest, Terry Butcher, like Gary Stevens, and Chris Woods was also at Rangers, Paul Parker of Queen's Park Rangers, Mark Wright, Derby County, Tony Dorigo of Chelsea. Midfield, there was Neil Webb and Brian Robson, both of Manchester United. Uh, Robson was captain. Chris Waddle, Marseille. John Barnes of Liverpool. David Platt of Aston Villa. Steve Hodge of Nottingham Forest. Paul Gascoigne, he was the youngest player of the squad and he was at Spurs at the time. Trevor Stephen, he was at Rangers too. And up front, there was Peter Beardsley of Liverpool, Gary Lineker of Tottenham Hotspur and Steve Bull of Wolves. Before the tournament began, England would have a few warm-up matches. We'd beat Denmark at home, thanks to a goal from Lineker. There was also a 2-1 defeat from Uruguay, again was at Wembley. Then we faced Tunisia in the capital, Tunis, and we drew one all there. For those of us at home in England we would be tuning into the tournament at a reasonable hour, with only a minimal time difference. Once again, the BBC and ITV fought it out for our attention, and it could be said that it was from here that the theme tunes would really resonate with the viewers as being part of the World Cup experience. And even now, when I hear Pavarotti's Ness and Dorma, I'm transported back to being a 12-year-old boy in front of the telly. BBC nailed it in 1990. ITV were left in the BBC's dust as they went with a track called Tutti al Mondo by Rod Argent and Peter Van Hook. Made it to number 81 in the charts. And of course, who could forget New Order's World in Motion? The best football pop song ever written? Certainly up there. That John Barnes rap. Here he is performing it in 2019 on the Jonathan Ross Show. Here we go, here we go. You got to hold a gig, but do it at the right time. You can be slow or fast, but you must get to the line. They'll always hit you and hurt you. Defend and attack. There's only one way to beat them. Get round the back, so catch me if you can. Cause I'm the England man, and what you looking at is the master plan. We ain't no hooligans, this ain't a football song. Three lions on my chest, I know we can. Keep playing for England. England. There you go. Yeah, John Barnes, ladies and gentlemen. Fantastic. He's still got it. As with all the previous episodes in this series, we've looked at all the little details that make the World Cup what it is. Much like the theme tunes, but there are also the little things, like the mascot and the posters, that help conjure up all those memories. 1990 was no different. The mascot was Chow. Uh, Following the Orange of Spain in 1982, the Pepper of Mexico in 86... What would Italy use? Pizza? Spaghetti? No. Uh, A load of cubes put together to form a figure of a player with a ball for a head. Those cubes would be individually coloured, red, white and green. The tricolour colours of the Italian flag, of course. And as bizarre as it looked, you couldn't look at it now and not know what it relates to. It's just perfect. And the poster... Of course, one of Italy's most famous landmarks, the Colosseum in Rome. Once a venue for the fiercest of gladiatorial battles, the poster used a bird's eye view of it, mainly in black and white. But in colour, in the centre, was a football pitch. And where you'd imagine the athletics track would be around it, 
there are all the participating nation's flags dotted around. The only strange thing with it is the wording Italia 90 is in black, and as the poster is generally black and white, it doesn't really stand out as it really should, in my opinion. It was a tournament that ran from the 8th of June until the 8th of July. England were drawn in Group F with Republic of Ireland, Netherlands and Egypt, where they would play all their games on the island of Sardinia in the city of Cagliari. Both Ireland and the Dutch were two sides who had met at the European Championships in West Germany two years earlier. And we'd only ever played Egypt once before in a friendly in 1986. And despite many having perhaps rose-tinted glasses and memories of the finals, in truth, it really wasn't one of the best. A record low of goals scored, a then record of 16 red cards issued, although it did see the introduction of three points for a win in the group stages. This tournament would take four of the six best third-place teams to go through to the knockout stages. Argentina, who had lost the opening match to surprise outfit Cameroon, well, they would be one of those third-place teams, and they would go on to make the final. A final which would be a rematch of the previous tournament's final. Although, sadly, this one, not nearly as exciting. Okay, you've heard my memories of that tournament 32 years ago. Now time to hear from someone who was there. Nineteen ninety. Well, it was the first World Cup that I have real memories of: Cameroon, Maradona, San Siro. But I wasn't there. Uh, it's time to speak with someone who was. Now, Mark Raven is a Brighton and England fan, and he joined us a while back. You may remember he we spoke about the Tournoir uh, that happened in nineteen ninety seven. I'm pleased to say he joins me again as we go back seven years before that. Mark, hello. Hello. Makes me feel old thinking that seven years before the Tournoir. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, what are we? Nineteen ninety. That's uh, is it? Thirty two years ago. It is. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. It seems it seems in some ways it seems a long way, long time ago. But other ways I can remember things like they were yesterday. So it's one of those tournaments you, that I'll never forget. Yeah. I mean, as I say, it's the first one that I really remember. And, and I think it's the same for a lot of people. And, and I, don't, I don't really know why. I guess we're all of that sort of same age and, and that sort of thing. And probably the, the TV was a, a, a decent time for us all. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think it came on the back of the, obviously, in 1988, we went to Germany and had a disastrous Euros. Yeah. And I, I don't know why it suddenly picked up, because the expectation around England was probably quite low at the time. And obviously, England fans also at that time had a very bad reputation. But the tournament captured everyone's imagination. I think part of that was the fact it was in Italy, which, you know, it, Italy loves football as much as we do. Yeah. And then perhaps it was the theme tunes to the two, you know, both channels had a great theme tune. And, I, you know, I think everybody remembers those as well. Yeah, no, you're you right. Yeah, especially the uh, the BBC's Ness and Dorma. Um, Indeed. We, England got there by, actually, well, not scraped through, but I don't know if you remember that we came second in a qualifying group to get there. Do you, do you remember much about the qualifiers? Yeah, I have to be honest and say I didn't go to any of the qualifiers. Actually, 1990, the game, the, the first game in the World Cup was my first ever England away match. Oh, right. So I went to home qualifiers, but not away. But I remember England only just made it. We were so close to being knocked out. Yeah, we, we finished behind Sweden in the qualifying. You said it's your first World Cup or your first tournament, your first trip abroad following England. Obviously, there was the the, the hooligan element that was sort of well-documented at the time. What, what were your feelings about going yeah, I must admit, I am I denied because I had the opportunity to go in in um, 88 to Germany, but I had actually decided in the end not to go. I actually went to see Brighton, had a pre-season tour in Portugal. So nice. I actually went, that was my first trip abroad watching football. Right. Um, and I think that wet, whetted my appetite to go. And, you know, being 22, single at the time, it was like World Cup in Italy. And it was just like, I fancy this. I really want to do this. 
And um, I got a really good opportunity for the first two weeks in Cagliari because I was in the Brighton Supporters Club at the time and they wanted stewards to go with the official trip. So for the first two weeks, I actually went as a, a steward. So that's what got me going. The offer to the opportunity to go, everything was covered. Everything was paid for for the first two weeks for me. So I couldn't say no. Wow. I mean, so what did that involve then, being a steward? It was basically because England fans were put on to uh, various campsites and uh, accommodation sites. And we just basically had to look after people there, had to organise, not organise, but tick people on and off the coaches to the three matches. So obviously we were isolated on the island to keep us away from mainland Italy. So it, it, it wasn't too much responsibility, but it turned out we did have quite a lot to do because it was a, <laughs> it wasn't the most friendly tournament at times. So it was, it was an experience. Well, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll touch on on that as we as we speak um, about it. But yeah, Sardinia and and Calgary, I sort of reading between the lines. I get the impression England were put there on purpose to isolate all the England fans. Oh, a hundred percent. Because I say we played all three first round games in in the same stadium, which is quite unusual because it was um, split with Palermo, I think if I've right. got that right. And I think they, the other teams had to, to travel there. In, they didn't want England fans travelling at all. So we were isolated on the island for, for two weeks. What was it like as a, an island? I've never been there. It's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. And where we were staying was on the coast. And, you know, the beaches were fantastic. I, I love Italy. I love Italian food as well. And I say the Italian people are very similar to us. They love their football. And it was actually a really... Other than the match days, it was absolutely fantastic. Everyone mixed and it was just a, a brilliant experience. And it's not, I've always said about going back, I've never made it back, but it, I would certainly recommend it. It's, it's a beautiful island. Yeah, it's one of those places that, uh, yeah, I'd like to, to go and see. Well, England were drawn with Ireland, Holland and Egypt in, what was it, Group F, I think it was. And yeah, first game was Ireland. And after, as you've already mentioned, 1988, where England lost in the Euros to Ireland. This was uh, this was going to be a bit of a, I don't know, grudge match? I think it was. It, it, I think the rivalry of Ireland was was quite bad around that time, obviously with problems going on mm. in Ireland at the time. And, uh, you know, England had played Ireland in various qualifiers and it was never particularly, there was no love lost between two, two sets of fans. But the thing is, I think despite 88, we still went in with the expectation that we were a better side than Ireland. And I think it was another eye-opener. The first game was, from memory, was absolutely dire. It was a nil-nil draw. The stadium was completely uncovered. Oh, no, sorry, it's 1-1. Sorry. 1-1, yeah. Yeah, it was um, an uncovered stadium and there was a tremendous thunderstorm and downpour. And all I remember is we were towards the very back of the stadium watching the lightning at the back of the stand, which was the highlight of the day. But um, I think Lineker... Uh, if I got it rightly, Lineker probably scored. I think he scored almost all our goals that tournament. But once again, we didn't play very well. And after that game, I think expectations just dropped even more. It was like, we we can't beat Republic of Ireland. How how far can we go in this tournament? Yeah, I've, the media, by all accounts, weren't particularly... Well, they weren't particularly kind to to England and Bobby Robson in, in particular. Um, but yeah, the... The reports after that game, I don't think, were particularly complimentary. I don't know if you, you had newspapers out there at the time. Yeah, I think p- people saw some of the stuff. You don't obviously we didn't have the same internet access, or I don't even remember using the internet in those days. But we did hear that they were getting a really tough time back home. And I think if you'd spoken to most England fans after that first game, they probably would have shared the thoughts that we we didn't really seem to know what to do to break down the team, and it was just really frustrating. And so all I remember is traipsing out the ground, soaking wet, thinking come all this way. <laughs> and um, I say, unfortunately, before that game, there also there had been quite a bit of trouble on that day as well. Once again, it, you know, that was one of the real downsides on some of the match days. It wasn't particularly friendly. Yeah. And also we had to deal with um, beer bans. They had a, I can't remember if it was 24 or 48 hours before every game and 24 hours afterwards, there was a total beer ban where the games were played. So in the, the city of what, is it Sardinia or the, is yeah, the island? In, in, Cagliari is the capital and um, there was a beer ban in Cagliari but the great thing was there was a US naval base which counts as part of the US land and they opened up 
two bars and there were must have been five six hundred england fans in these bars and we spent about five six hours in there and it was absolutely we, we managed to break the beer band in every city but it was a it was a challenge and that was one of the more difficult ones because Cagliari's not very big it's quite a small place right. compared to most big cities and uh yeah but it was a yeah it was certainly an experience that first day that was, it was my first england game and i came away thinking what's this all about? Do I really want to do this? But I, you know, by the end of the tournament, I'd caught the England bug. But if you'd asked me after game one, I'd still be going today. I would have said no way. Yeah. Did you go on your own or were you with a, a group of friends? Uh, there was two of us went out for the first part. So it's just two of us because um, they asked for, t- for two people from the Brighton Supporters Club to steward the coaches. They wanted two people on every coach, which is probably the best way to do it. So yeah, went with a mate. Yeah. Do they still do this stewarding thing? Can you get World Cup trips for free now? I honestly don't know the way they they run official trips now, but they're more based on probably the company that go. I don't yeah. know if they take stewards. I really don't know, and I think there's a lot more, probably a lot more independent travel now because it was you know these days it's, it's much easier to sort your own trip out. But but then a few more people went on official official travel. Yeah, of course, and like eighty eight. We had uh, we had Ireland and we had Holland as well. And Holland were next up for England. Obviously, they had Van Basten and Hullet, who'd uh, annihilated us in in '88. But this, Indeed. yeah, this was the uh, the nil nil that you you're probably referring to. Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, and, and uh, yeah. Say so coming back from '88, I think everyone remembers things like Van Basten's goal in the you know he was one he was one of the best players I ever saw play. And as you say, Holland were absolutely fantastic, but. One thing I did when I did my blog on this, I did write down England changed formation for that match. And I think for the first time we went to five at the back and Mark Wright came in as a sweeper. You never saw England play with a different formation other than 4-4-2. And and Bobby Robson was really brave, changed the formation. And all I remember is we took Holland to pieces and it finished nil-nil. We were really, really unlucky not to win that game. And um, I think everyone came away from that one thinking, actually, we're not a bad side, but we've got to get out of this group. Because I think, again, from memory, I think all the first four games were all draws. Everybody drew. So it made the group really, really tight. And I think it meant we went into the last match with anyone could qualify. Yeah, no, you're right. And the the last match was against Egypt. Yeah, we won that one (laughs) just, just by a goal to nil. Yeah, I, that's one of the ones that's it's strange how things stick in your mind. I remember Mark, Mark Wright scored. He didn't score many goals and say he'd been playing sweeper. And I think it was a flicked header. And he, I say we won that game 1-0, very narrow. And it was strange because the crowd wasn't that big for that game because obviously Egypt had very, very few there. I think there was one Egyptian Navy boat had turned up. So there was about 200 Egyptians, all, all Navy, all dressed just in plain white. It was a very strange sight. Yeah. Um, but it, once again, that was one day where the match day, everything before it was really good. It was really relaxed. And obviously, we were very happy afterwards because uh, we qualified. So, uh, yeah, very pleased when Mark Wright stuck in the header. <laughs> I've got a feeling, I haven't got my notes here, but Ireland and Holland, well, they played the last game and that may have been a draw. And did they have to draw lots to see who went through on that? I've got a feeling that they both went through. So I think it might have been the days when the top two went through and uh, possibly the third best placed team. But I could be wrong on that. But I've, I've got a feeling, yeah, that, that Ireland and Holland didn't win a qualifier, yet both qualified for the knockout stages. Yes, thinking about it, because obviously Ireland went through and had the the various well, they had the penalty shootout against, yeah. was that Romania, I think, um, yes. with Bonner saving the penalties in Genoa. And then there was... Holland played Germany at some point because there was right. there was Rudy Voller and um, <laughs> Reichard uh, having a uh, yeah yep. the spitting incident yes so yeah, they both went through yeah. yeah so yeah we we sneaked through uh, England winning that group um, by it, it was three points for a uh, three points for a win and one for a draw back then so five points we've we've gone through and what what was your feelings then we're well, right we're through this what was confidence high? It, it was. And what, what actually happened was that, that that became the end of my my free trip, in effect. Right. So I flew, I, that we flew back to the UK after the final game. Yeah. And as soon as I got back, I booked to, to return to Italy under my own steam. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I got the bug and it's like, I, 
I've seen these first three games. I have to go back to see the rest of this tournament. So I made my own way back out to, to Italy. So I, I had the belief then being my first tournament, I thought everything's going to be like this. We get through the group stages <laughs> and then see what happens. Because, uh, yeah, so I flew back. I, I believed that we could do something. How long were you home for? And I think I was home for about, it was not much more than 24 hours because the turnaround for the next game actually wasn't that that long. And obviously we didn't leave till the day after the um, uh, the final qualifier against um, Egypt. So it was, I think it was about 24 hours and I was straight back out. And there must have been like other people maybe who'd, who'd knocked the uh, the group stage on the head thinking, right, we'll go for the, the knockouts. So were there, were there other people going out with you? Yeah, there's actually more people started to turn up. I say there was probably only around, probably about 1,500, 2,000 for the qualifiers. It was quite a small turnout from England, but it got bigger and bigger as the tournament went on. So yeah, more more people went to mainland Italy. And I think that's when, obviously, people watching it on television, Italy is reasonably easy to get to. And I think that's when people started to catch the bug, especially when we started playing reasonable football. And I think it's like, we always believe we're going to win the World Cup. And I think that's what happened. Yeah. Well, it was, as you say, it was mainland Italy now, and it was Bologna in the round of 16 against Belgium. Talk us through that one. Yeah, that was, um, it's a it's a really strange ground, Bologna. It's the one where it's got the city wall actually goes through the main stand. So right. it's a really old city, Bologna. It's a beautiful city again. And at the time, it's the steepest stands I've ever been in. It was because um, it had been practically rebuilt, rebuilt for the World Cup. Most of the grounds in Italy were rebuilt mm. and again we knew Belgium were a, were a strong team I don't think they were as strong then as they they are now and again it was one we thought the game could go either way and all I remember is I was actually in the other end from the main England fans because at the time believe it or not you could sign up to the England travel club as it was in and you could sign up to become a member and buy a match ticket while you're out right. there, which you can't, can't imagine that happening now. <laughs> no. <laughs> but we ended up in the other end to the main block of England supporters. I think they they sold them on the day to separate bits. And all I remember was seeing the whole bank of England supporters at one end, and they did make a fair old racket, definitely outnumbered the Belgian fans. And that's when I started to, to really catch the bug. It's like beautiful city, fantastic stadium. And you know, the way the match finished, you know, I think we can gloss over the first 118 minutes or wherever yeah. it was. And then, you know, Platt put in an absolutely fantastic goal in the 119th minute. And we were all gearing up for penalties. It's the first time I've ever seen it because the stand was so steep. Everybody was on the floor celebrating the goal because you couldn't, as soon as you jumped around, everybody just fell over each other. And there was just a sea of about, in our end, there's what, about four or 500 people lying on the floor <laughs> celebrating. It was I've never seen anything like it and it was absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, I still today say that is one of my top three or four England goals ever because it's a brilliant finish. And when it came in the match, it was yeah. unreal. Well, so you you guys were on the floor. I know I've seen pictures of of the players are all on the floor, pictures where I think it's Lineker is sort of on the floor, but turning his head, he's got this sort of face of disbelief that England have, have made it through to the... Uh, to the next round in that last minute. They're all like bundled on the floor. Indeed. Because I don't think, I think at the time Platt wasn't really a regular. This is, he was, I think he might have been a substitute. Again, I'm not 100% sure, but I think he might have come, come on a sub and scored that goal. Right. And, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a, a regular in the first team. So he, well, it, was, it was unexpected. Obviously, he went on to become a great player and scored some really good goals for England. But I think that day, and again, it was, it was a really tight game. And I do remember, I think Chris Waddle hit the, post or the bar and you, you know when we kept missing and had several near misses you kept thinking Belgium are going to go up the other end and put one in but for once it was England that did that in the last minute and that you, you never see that so yeah it's still it's still one of my best games and best goals with England. So you say you you got your match ticket there and, and you joined up with the the supporters club prior yeah. to the game how much was it to join the supporters club back then and how much was a match ticket do you remember? I, I I can't remember. I think it was something like twenty pounds to become a member. Okay. And they they had to do a little. They, I, I can't even remember if they did security checks in those days. They literally just signed you up and gave you the members card there and then on the spot from right. a little hut by the gap by the ground. And um, the tickets were all I remember is it's the same as every World Cup. There was always four category prices, and we managed to get yeah. the lowest price in each one. And 
obviously it wouldn't even have been in euros in those days. I can't remember what currency we paid in. World Cups were all different. But um, lira, wouldn't it? it? Italian it would have lira. been lira. But whether they sold them in lira, I, I can't remember because obviously being a, a, a World Cup, oh, I can't I see. remember that. It, it wasn't very expensive. I think we paid about £20 for the group games and then it gradually stepped up. And I think we paid £60 for the semi-final at the time, which is the most I'd ever paid for a match ticket at the time. But you're not, not going to buy one when you get to that stage. That's right. So where, if you were um, in, in those group games in, what was it, a campsite you were staying on? Yes, yeah. Were you, were you camping in, in the mainland? No, we, we, we stayed in hotels in the mainland. What we do is we, we hooked up actually with another company. Once we got out there, I had a few other mates already watching. And um, there was a coach company. I can't remember their name again, but they sort of organised um, coaches between the venues, between the cities and also our hotel accommodation. So once again, we didn't have to do that much because some people have been out with them since day one. So they wow. were basically out for the whole tournament with this uh, travel company. So when we arrived, um, we booked our accommodation for the first couple of nights by ourselves. But then obviously we had to get from um, Bologna to um, to Naples. And it's like, it's it's like, well, we've got to try and organise all this. And the the guys spoke to the people organising the trip and he goes, oh, no, just join us. You know, you can pay for each bit as we come along. So we just jumped on their coach and stayed with them for the rest of the tournament. Oh, nice one. Easily done then. Well, I mean, don't want to dwell too much on it, but did you see much trouble whilst you were there unfortunately all the way through yes it was um it, england fans yeah there were there was lots of clashes with this, some of the italian groups when you got into cities and i think that's all come down to the you know that's where ultras started was in italy and on each of the matches there's no doubt the, the italian ultras saw it as their right to defend their city from england fans turning up so it it, it, so it wasn't a particularly warm welcome on match days and I think there was trouble at every single match, unfortunately. And, yeah. you know, sometimes a couple of times it was England against England. At that time, there was club rivalries that popped up their heads, which you don't really don't expect. So when we were on in Sardinia on the first one, I think um, it was after the second match because uh, we were stewards. I think um, uh, some England supporters got attacked going from the campsite into the town where we were staying. Um, two of them got put in hospital. One got stabbed. Uh, one got a brick on the head. And, you know, there was there was quite a lot of nasty incidents like that. And you had times where people, the Italian fans were going round on Vespers and they were slashing people with chains and people were getting knifed. And it was like, you know, England's reputation during that tournament got worse and worse. You know, I think we were on the verge of being thrown out of the tournament at one stage. And it, it, it became a little bit like a siege mentality. The England supporters got to the stage where everyone was was huddled in small places and same bars because it was safety in numbers. And then that becomes an obvious target if there's other people who want trouble. So I think the least trouble was when we got to the semi-final and that's because the, all the Italians wanted us to beat Germany. <laughs> oh, right. So they desperately wanted an England Italy final. And obviously we know that ended up being the third, fourth playoff, but mm. the Italians all wanted us to get through. So it sort of changed when we got st- to the latter stages the Italians started wanting us to get through rather than wanting us to go home <laughs> yeah well before we get to the the semi-final they've got the uh, <laughs> the small matter of the uh the quarterfinals you say was down in down in Naples Cameroon who were pretty much the surprise team of the tournament weren't they they were they they were you know they played some fantastic football I think everyone remembers Roger Miller and it was like I think in some ways Cameroon had this reputation where they lost their heads at times in the game. When they played their football, they were brilliant, but they I, I think they had several players sent off in that tournament and they gave away a few penalties. And we know that's what came to England's saviour that day because actually Cameroon played really, really well that day and it, Lineker scored two penalties. And I think we were really lucky to actually get through that game. We could easily have lost, but... That, that's when you think your name's on the cup because it was, a, again, it was, um, you know, the, the stadium in Naples was fantastic at the time. I hadn't been to a ground like that before and the atmosphere was brilliant. There was quite a few England out there that day. Obviously, there weren't many from, from Cameroon. I think all the neutrals wanted Cameroon to win, so we were the bad guys that day. But, yeah, it was a, it was a tough game and I remember sitting in the bar after that game again and everyone was saying, our name's on the cup. If we can win a game like that, get two penalties and come through, then you know, we could win this tournament. And I think 
like you say, Lineker got two penalties there. I've got a feeling one of them was a little bit debatable that he might have gone down a little bit too easy. Yeah, I remember seeing it on videos afterwards and it's like he knew what he played for that. He knew what he wanted. And if I remember rightly, one of the penalties, he just smashed down the middle. If the keeper had stood up and not dived, he would have caught it easily. Yeah. But um, fair play. I don't think Lineker missed many penalties at that time. And that was that was the second game that had gone to extra time for England. Because obviously yeah, the Belgium right. before uh, and then Cameroon. And I, I seem to remember like on the telly, that they, they would mention that it was really warm out there at the time. Yeah, that, that's the one thing I do remember, from apart from getting soaked in the Ireland game, is, is, is the, was the heat. Even when the games were in the evenings, it was incredibly hot. I remember it, it was after the, actually the game in Bologna. We were staying just outside of Bologna and we, we, got, we got our coach back and we stopped on the way back, found a, a pizzeria place and um, we were sitting outside on the balconies. I have no idea what time of night it was, half 11, midnight. Yeah, we're all sitting there so hot, but so happy. And I just remember that. It's like, this is bonkers heat. And playing football in that must be really, really tough. And uh, yeah, the great story that day was um, because I still had the beer ban on. And uh, the pizza place was, if you're going to stay here, they're really nice. As I said, you have to order a pizza, leave it in the middle of the table, and then you can keep ordering beers. So I think the first order was one pizza, 50 beers. (laughs) And I think... We kept that going for about three or four hours to celebrate. And the, the pizza place loved it because obviously we filled filled the place. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I just remember sitting outside. Uh, I, it was probably about two, three in the morning when we left and everyone was in short shirt sleeves, just loving it. Lovely, lovely. Well, one player that we we haven't mentioned yet, but he was the provider for the, for the goal for David Platt um, against Belgium with his free kick was Gaza. What was the, what was the feelings of Gaza back then? Yeah, we loved him. He, once again, he, he he was one of the few players that could turn the game on its head. He was a match winner. And everyone, I think at the time he'd, he'd done, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd had the instance with um, against Vinnie Jones when we know what he was doing, you know. And so he had a reputation as being a, a, the clown. But on the, on the pitch, he was absolutely amazing. He's one, once again, I keep saying best players, but again, in an England shirt, in a major tournament, he was fantastic. And if you've got someone like that in your team, you know, you can he can change the result. He can do one thing. As you say, he put in the free kick for Platt to put in in the last minute against Belgium. We, you don't have many players who can do that. And he, and he did it quite regularly for England. The, the fans loved him. And obviously, we know, that, that made Gaza. You know, probably was part of his downfall as well because he became so famous. But um, And I think he was really important for the team as well. I think every team needs someone who's a bit different. And... Uh, Bobby Robson probably was the one manager who could get the best out of someone like Gaza. We're doing a, a a real tour of Italy from Bologna down to Naples, and then for the semi-final, it was right up north to the uh, to Turin. Indeed, yes, yeah. That, so we did we did we did it all by coach these these trips, and they were long, long old trips. But the good thing is we had two or three days between games, so we tended to break it up. The coach stopped halfway. No. Um, but yeah, we saw a lot of Italy, and um, yeah, it was on on to Turin next for the for the big one. What was the the thoughts? Because I I no doubt that you've been watching other games on the telly, or did you did you get to other games in in the flesh? Didn't didn't see any other matches. Saw lots of them on television, mm. and uh, the atmospheres when when Italy were playing, you know, it was absolutely amazing. You know, that as I say, the Italians are passionate about their football, and when they when they were getting through and I can't, is it, was it Scalacci who scored all yes. the goals in 1990? You know, he, he was such a cult figure out there. And yeah, w- w- the, the, just watching the games on TV was was almost as good as being there when it wasn't England, especially when it was Italy. It was absolutely fantastic. But no, unfortunately, we didn't. It's mainly because of distances in travelling. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't get a chance to see any other match. But no, but you, just the England ones we saw. Yeah, you, you must have seen Germany on the telly at some point. As I say, they had that game against Holland. And obviously the the history with Germany, probably yeah. obviously the final back in '66, and there was the game in '70. But then I don't think we probably really had any any games against them of note. A lot of games against Germany, I guess, have been after. Yeah, I, th- I think as you say, we hadn't played them for a long time. I think when we played them in the semi-finals, but yeah, I think everyone remembers. You know, it, Germany were such a tough side, such a well-organized side. And yeah, we, we knew when 
because you can work out pretty much from the quarterfinals on who you're going to get in the, yeah. or you can guess who you're going to get uh, all the way through to the final. And it's like, oh no, we're going to, we've got Germany in the semi final. Obviously, I think that was the first start of the let's lose to penalties on Germany. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, but, so, but at the time, again, we knew that was going to be an incredibly tough game. And it's one of the few times I've been to an, an England game as well where we were totally outnumbered by the number of Germans out there, which really surprised me. Germany had massive support there for that semi final. And England, it was the one game where people struggled to get tickets and we were massively outnumbered. But I say we were all the neutrals in that semi-final supported England. But yeah, obviously, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't to be our day. Well, this was the, the Stadio Deli Alpi, I think they, they called it. Um, That's it's, right. Yeah, it's not, the, it's not the ground which Juventus now play in, but it was, it was a big, was it a big running track ground. It was an absolutely massive ground. And it's one of these really weird stadiums where it's built down from... When you enter, you enter pretty much at the top of the stadium. So when you see the ground outside, it looks really small because you're just seeing I almost see. the roof and a very small back of it. But when you go in, it then goes down miles. And it was an absolutely massive ground. I think it was Juventus and uh, Torino shared at that time. But yeah. I, th- I don't, I'm actually not sure if it's still there anymore. So as we know, Juventus built a new ground, yeah. um, much smaller. But yeah, it was, it was the biggest ground I've been to at the time. I think it was 60,000, 70,000 it held. And um, so it's one of those weird grounds where sometimes stadiums look really impressive as, as you arrive. And we sort of got there and it's like, well, this looks tiny, can't <laughs> be. And it, it's such a deceptive one because what they did was where England fans, they sort of segregated the city that day. England fans were in one side and Germany on the other. And then they bust us in. Right. So at the time, it's probably about four or five thousand England fans were bust in at the same time. And it, you could just see this ground getting closer and closer and everyone's going, it's getting smaller and smaller whereas <laughs> normally you say they get bigger and bigger and it, it had no floodlights either which was really weird at the time it obviously had floodlights on the roof which yeah. at the time you didn't get that you normally saw the big pylons but you had none of that as you approached the stadium and it was just uh it, it looked really weird and bizarre but uh it was a fantastic ground it's another game obviously that that we all know about it, it went to extra time but it was it was one all in the during 90 minutes, because Lineker got us a, uh, a goal with 10 minutes to go. It must have been a, a great atmosphere inside there. Oh, it was it was absolutely amazing. And um, it was one of those games where, again, it, it was actually a good game of football. Sometimes, you know, semi-finals can be very cagey. But both, it, both teams went for it. And England could have, could have, should have, could have won that game. And we all know, you know, the, the free kick that Germany scored, I think it was Paul Parker it hit, it looped up and it beat beat Shilton. And it was one of those bizarre goals where if you, if you tried to recreate that or do that again, it would, it would never happen. Mm. And, you know, Germany didn't look like scoring. And then, again, this was the, obviously the third match on the trot that went to extra time. And you're starting to think, you know, the England players would obviously would be tired. And I know I, it was offside, but then Waddle hit the bar from about 50 yards. He put an absolutely brilliant shot in and and then it became you know the dreaded penalties yeah what were you at the end or where were you in the ground we were at the end of the penalties yeah yeah we, we were in the corner of the end where the penalties were and again it was another strange one where Shilton didn't I don't think Shilton was was renowned for a penalty saver and obviously we had I think it was Dave Besson was on the bench and some people were saying at the time, and I know it became something that other teams do do now, about do you bring Besant on for the penalty shootout? We didn't, obviously. And I've seen the, pe- the shootout quite a few times, and I don't think Peter Shilton actually got close to a single German penalty, unfortunately. Yeah, I must admit, I've I've heard that as well. I'd, I don't think I've watched it back. Obviously, the the two penalties that we missed, Pierce, Pierce was saved. Wasn't it by uh, yep. was it Ilgner, the German goalkeeper? I think Bodo Ilgner, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then Waddle obviously blazed over the bar. Yeah, yeah, it was just. Uh, it, it, I, I was so gutted. It's, it's 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 the most gutted I've ever been at football. I think because first tournament and you, I suppose at the time, a bit naive, thinking, "Oh, we get, we're going to do this every tournament, semi-finals." Right, finally, but, yeah, and you know, we, we had we we got better and better during that tournament. And it, it was really, it, it just felt, I suppose I was young and it was like uh, football sort of meant everything. It was like, I can't believe we've lost this. 
And all I remember is the England fans were silent at the final whistle. Yeah, they clapped the players. But after that, the England fans were silent. And it was just like, I, I think most people couldn't actually believe that we'd lost that game because we were. I thought we were the better side. We had some good chances. I've, I can't remember if that's the first penalty shootout England had been in. It would have been for a semi-final. But, um, you know, little did we know that we'd go on to, to hardly ever win a penalty shootout. But at the time, it was such a lottery. And you, you just think, I still think these days, penalty shoot, shootouts can go either way. I think it is, some of it's luck on the day. Yes, it is down to taking penalties. But I, I, I haven't been more gutted at a final whistle than at that one. And all I remember is, Again, as you say, it was really, really hot in Turin that night, and I remember coming out, and our coaches were going straight back to the back to the UK after that game. And once again, there was some trouble after that game, but that was between Germans and Italians. And all I remember is walking through all this tear gas that the Italian police had fired back to the coaches, and uh, everyone was just—I've never seen like six, seven thousand people, England fans, complete, hardly talking. Everyone was talking to each other, but it was just that feeling of. Uh, gutted absolutely gutted because England were played really really well you know I think Bobby Robson got the best out of a team that wasn't necessarily the best team but I think he's one of the few managers who got the best out of players and you know he he was treated abysmally by the press and you know he left um, shortly afterwards and I I think if he'd stayed there we could have built a really good team and he, he could have taken England you know, I think we've we've improved recently. Obviously, we've had some good, you know, got further in tournaments. But yeah, I suppose I was naive then in 1990, believing every World Cup we've got a chance of winning, we'll get to the semi-finals and finals. So it's my first taste of disappointment with England. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, sadly, more more to come. So, did you go straight back after that, or did you stay out for the third and fourth? No, we decided not to because it was um, uh, it was it was right down south again. I think it's in Bari. And oh, that would okay. have meant going right back to the other end of Italy. And actually, the, the the coach took a vote on it about whether people wanted to go because the coach would have gone if people had wanted to. And I don't think anyone did. Yeah. <laughs> so we opted to, to, to come straight back. So we did. We we didn't stay for the, the third, fourth playoff. So you, you made your way home. And, and then I guess you, you would have watched the final on the telly. Yeah, got home to see it on the TV. And uh, yeah, one thing I remember about on the trip on the way back, because... Um, some of the other friends who went, if if you travelled independently, they actually put free trains back on for England fans because they wanted to get them out of Turin. Right. So some of my friends got back all the way by train. They got uh, from uh, Turin to Paris and then Paris to to London. Didn't pay a penny. Lovely. And um, we, we came back obviously by coach. And when we were waiting to go onto the ferry, we were going to the bar as you do, despite five weeks of uh, mm. way too much Italian beer. And um, the barman on the ferry boat, he, he saw there was a coach load of us who'd been to the match. He gave all of us a free beer. Oh, fair it play. Was like, it was like, excellent. <laughs> but I've never been so tired trying to drink a beer because it's absolutely <laughs> exhausting after after losing the hot weather and then, uh, you know, various hours on the coach back to Calais and then finally the ferry. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was a good trip back. And I say, we always remember the, the barman gave away quite a few beers that, that day. <laughs> Uh, it's a, a great way to start um, following England uh, at, a, at a tournament and, and making it to the to the semi-finals. Are you, are you confident again going forward this this year? Yeah, it's 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 so hard with England because one of the problems it, it's nothing England can do about it, but it, we seem to walk through the qualifiers and we don't have that many tough games in qualifiers, and yet as soon as you get to finals. It, it, it's like a big step up and it, it, it's, it's it's I think that I was against the Nations League when they brought it in because I thought I you don't want to I, I didn't want another tournament I quite enjoy friendlies but actually Nations League has given us some harder matches that mean something so, so we'll prepare the team you know better for tournaments and again I think Southgate's got his critics I think he's actually got some young players playing really well and I think for the first time for a while um you know, some of the, probably most of the players are, pl- are proud to play for England and want to play for England, and it means something. So I think in the last six, seven years, it's actually turned round that there's passion around England amongst the players, and we have got players who are, are good. You know, players like Kane, he will score goals. You know, his scoring record is phenomenal, and it still worries me our defence. I'm not sure our defence is the best in the world, but I think we're the Nations League. Tougher matches give us better preparations for finals, but 
Qatar is going to bring in massive challenges because it's, you know, once again, I've not, no idea what the heat will be like. I know they said they'll be air conditioned, but yeah, I think we can do okay. Yeah, no, let's let's hope so. Yeah, it would be would be great to get to that semi final position again. It would be great to uh, to go a step further. It would, yeah, because obviously the lot, you know, Russia once yeah. again the Croatia games, Croatia game, we were close, we were leading again, didn't quite make it, but again in that tournament we got better as the tournament went on, and that was a real opportunity because Croatia were beatable, but and I, I think you need to draw to fall nicely for you yes you have to beat the best teams to win the world cup but you still need in some ways to be in the right side of the draw but um yeah i I still think england can give it a good go in qatar let's hope so mark thank you very much for your time as always and yeah let's maybe we can speak again indeed yes a pleasure My thanks go to Mark Raven there. As we mentioned, he joined me for a look at Le Tournoir a while back. That can be found episode 136, if you missed that one. But great memories. It was, of course, a tournament that was just a step too far. As you heard, England bowing out at the semi-final stage on penalties. And we would lose out to hosts Italy in the third fourth place match but by that time the interest in the football was perhaps gone although the team brought Luton to a standstill as they went on an open top tour bus around Luton Gazza with his fake breasts and both Pierce and Waddle celebrated too despite feeling initially reluctant understandable I guess this World Cup series will continue although sadly England wouldn't make it to America in 1994. It would be eight years, though, before we grace the tournament once more. The memories of France 98, or they'll be coming your way soon. Thank you, as always, for joining me once again. Thank you very much to Mark Raven. I hope you've enjoyed it. As I mentioned, all the previous episodes can be found at your podcast provider of choice or threelinespodcast.com. There's lots of England memories over there. And once again, if you're not following on social media, you can do. You can find it on the likes of Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. My name is Russell Osborne. The Three Lions podcast will continue very soon with some more England content. I hope you can join me for it. So until then, take care. Cheers. Cheers.